You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. If you would, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. I want to see what God has for us here together as he has led me to this particular passage for this particular morning. This text is part of the Apostle Peter's sermon on the heels of Pentecost. And maybe that's a familiar thing for you, Pentecost. And if it is, I'll give you a little refresher. And and if it's not, I'll kind of clue you in a little bit. Either way, it's totally okay. Pentecost was that day when God sent his spirit to fill and indwell each and every believer. In in days of old, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit of God sometimes would rush upon uh, the men of God or women of God and and, and enable them to accomplish, uh, you know, some amazing, things at that particular time and then but not necessarily stay with them and in them he was with the people as a whole of course but on an individual basis not so much But here at Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus uh, was buried and rose again from the dead, the Holy Spirit is sent, just like Jesus promised, and he fills the believers. That's Pentecost. And in Peter's sermon, right on the heels of that, to explain to them this miraculous, like other earthly thing that happened, Peter first tells the crowd about Jesus, Always a good place to start. Amen? Amen. He first tells the crowd about Jesus, and then he tells them how to respond to Jesus. That's verses 37 to 41, how they should respond to him, which provides a picture-perfect example for how we should respond to Jesus and a means of assessing ourselves as we do. In other words, their response, the response of the crowd at Pentecost, is a standard by which to measure our response to Jesus. So let's start with Peter's summary statement in verse 36, verse 36, and then we'll go from there. You follow along. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, therefore indicating his conclusion about Jesus, and the house of Israel referring primarily to God-fearing Jews of old, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Ooh, that's a little strong. In other words, he's like, Jesus is the one. Everybody, everybody, Jesus is the one. He's the anointed one. He's the the promised one. He's the, the blessed one, like you name it. He's Lord and Savior and you killed him. Strong words, words that most people wouldn't tolerate in our day to their demise. And now now notice the response, verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard this, the truth about Jesus and their part in his death, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. What happened just a, like a few minutes, a few hours before at Pentecost there when the Spirit rushed upon them and filled them, each and every one of them? He's like, you can have the same. You can have the same. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you too will receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, both in distance and time, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amazing, amazing. And it's a shining example of what to do in light of the gospel, in light of the good news about Jesus, in light of his truth. And therefore, it's a means to assess our own response. A shining example of what to do and therefore a means to assess our own response in what we should do in responding to Jesus. A, a means of assessing our own lives, our own hearts and souls. And it's an assessment that I framed with eight questions here from the text, starting with this one. Am I convicted about sin? That's the first question for us. Ask yourself, am I convicted about sin? Like generally speaking in life, is that the case? Because those at Pentecost were totally. It says in verse 37, keep your finger on the text, they were cut to the heart. Now that's not like I will cut you like Bon Quiqui, you know, like 10 years ago or something. Not, not that, no, no. This is, I, they were cut to the heart as in convicted, uh, vexed, crushed, just crushed, grieved over their sin. Which is vital, is it not? Is not conviction vital, at least for anything good, anything eternal, anything God-glorifying? It totally is. Listen, no conviction about sin, no salvation from its consequences. And, and, and no conviction, no sanctification. You know, becoming more and more like Jesus after you were first saved. I mean, why would you make right what's wrong in your life if you're not convicted about it, if you're not grieved by it before the Lord, if you're not crushed and vexed in your soul of souls, if you're not cut to the heart. So how about it? When you sin, do you feel sorrow? Do you? I mean, do you ache because of how you offended God? Not because of, you know, like some sort of consequences or you were found out in your secret sin or whatever it is, but but do you ache because against you and you only have I sinned, oh God? Would that describe you? Like, do, does it nag you? Does your sin nag you and plague you until you confess it? I hope so, because that's where restoration starts. That's where relief begins. That's where reconciliation is found with you and the Lord. Or, or is it no big deal for you? You know, water off a duck's back. Or maybe you just ignore your conviction. Is that it? You know, maybe rationalize it, stuff it, suppress it with drink, mask it with drugs. I mean, is that your MO? Oh, loved one, I hope not. 
Because a calloused heart is a dangerous place. It's thin ice. Or perhaps withdrawal is your thing. I'm pretty sure you've been there. I've been there. You know, when you sin, sometimes the last thing you want to do is be around other believers because it just makes you feel that much more convicted. That's one of the reasons we need to be around one another. That's one of the means that God uses to purify us, to grow us up, to mature us. Maybe withdrawal is your thing, staying away from people instead of getting together or staying home instead of coming to church. And you're thinking, I'm glad I came to church this weekend. Maybe your thing is binge watching instead of worshiping. Playing instead of praying. Oh, what a difference a letter makes. Playing instead of praying. Assess yourself. Search your heart and ask God to do the same. Search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be in me any wicked way. Am I convicted about sin? Second, in this self-assessment drawn from these verses, do I ask for help? Am I convicted about sin and do I ask for help? Verse 37 now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They asked for help. Brothers, what shall we do? And we should do the same. It's laid out here for our example. And I'm not talking about help, help with directions, you know, from here to there, the thing that your husband didn't do in the days before GPS when Siri told us to make all the turns. I'm not, not talking about that. I'm talking about the way from here to there. I'm talking about the way. I'm talking about the way to life, the, the way to Jesus. I'm talking about the way to discipleship, the way to live your faith and walk your talk more and more, glorifying him more and more. I'm talking about asking for help to love more and to know more and to speak more and to do more in his name. Is that you? Is that you? As you measure your life in light of those at Pentecost. I mean, do you ask for help in life or do you, you know, go it alone? Are you one of those people like, dude, I'm an island, island unto myself. Like, whatever you need, you need. I don't need. I literally used to think that way. Shame on me. Careful, it doesn't take long for the Lord to reveal your inadequacies in that. It took me about one semester of college to realize that I was an idiot for thinking such things. And it's the exact opposite of those at Pentecost. They needed help, they wanted help, and they asked for help. They asked for it, and we should do the same. It could be a question about how to apply the Bible, to, to go to somebody else in, in the church who you know is more knowledgeable than you are and to say, I, I have a question. Can I ask you a question? My son-in-law does that all the time right now. One of my sons-in-laws, in fact, both of them do, and I love it. I love it. it. It could be, you know, how to handle an issue in our culture. There's plenty of those issues to go around these days. It, it could be an impasse in your marriage. Like Becky and I had about nine years into our marriage. We're going to be married uh, 30 years here in like three weeks, right? 
I love you. Praise the Lord for that. Yeah. Um, where was I? <laughs> she, she tends to do that, man. She, whoo. It's really good. It's really good. We had an impasse in our marriage about nine, nine years in. It seemed like every time we got into a discussion, it, it went into a fight. You know what I'm talking about? It was like we couldn't discuss anything without it degenerating into boxing gloves. And so we went to another godly couple who loved us and who thought biblically. Godly, loving, and biblical. And we said to them, will you sit down with us and really just kind of listen in on our conversations that we know we need to have about particular issues and, and, and referee. And, and there were a couple of those times where like I was brought up short because I was being a knucklehead and, and Becky not so much. But man, we asked for help because we had an impasse with an aspect of life, a.k.a. marriage, that was meant to glorify God and here we were shaming him. The point is, there's no shame in not knowing something and asking for help. There's much shame in the other way around. Ask for help, especially in spiritual matters, matters of life and death, matters of the kingdom, matters of Jesus. Assess yourself, and if necessary, make a change. Make a change in the strength that God provides. Make a change. Number three, do I believe the gospel? Do I believe the gospel? That's the idea of verse 41. Skip down there. We'll come back to the intervening verses. Verse 41, Peter says those, actually Luke's commentary on Peter's message and the crowd's response, says those who received his word, Peter's word, were baptized. And two words that are so key there, received and word. Do you see them? Those who received his word were baptized. Received as in accepted as true. Uh, made it a part of their very being, their very fabric. They believed for themselves. Those who received what Peter had to say about Jesus followed through. But it started, we'll come back to the follow through, but it started, the follow through did, with belief. And not just, you know, this nebulous belief, this nebulous faith that's kind of out there these days. Oh, you have faith and I have faith and well, I have faith and we do the hokey pokey. It's, it's faith with an object. It's faith in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus that makes all the difference in the world. Amen? All the difference. And all the difference in our lives. And that's where it started, belief in Jesus, that he was and is both Lord and Christ, as he said back in verse 36. That is, Lord, ruler of our lives, and, and Christ, Savior of our souls. It's belief that he's both Lord and Christ, and he gave his life so that we have it. You know what that's called? It's called the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what they believed. That's what they received. That's what they made a part of them it's the gospel. And those at Pentecost received it. They believed it. Question is, do you? Stay with me here. Especially if you were saved, you know, years ago, decades ago. Do you believe the gospel? Not did you, but do you? Do you? present tense, right now. Are you in a present state of ongoing belief that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? 
If not, you're trying to ride the coattails of your past and you've got a serious problem. You do. Because the Bible says that we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You hear that? We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence, our original belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior firm to the end, the end of our lives or when Jesus returns, whichever happens first. In other words, we are saved now and we always have been if we believe until we die. No perseverance, no salvation. If you don't currently believe, you never really did. It's not as though you can lose your salvation. It's as though you never had it. If you don't believe now, you never really did. Do I believe the gospel? I was recently given an updated copy of Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a book maybe you've heard of. It's been around for quite some time. It was originally written by Josh McDowell, and it's now been expanded by he and his son. Just last year, I believe, it came out. And since its original publication in 1972, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict has sold over 3 million copies worldwide, translated into a, a whole bunch of different languages. But most impressive is the content of this book, ranging from evidence for the truthfulness of the Bible that we hold in our hands uh, to the lordship of Jesus, the existence of God, and, and everything in between. It's just overwhelming and conclusive, removing every stumbling block to the gospel except stubbornness and irrationality. Like those are things that only the Holy Spirit of God can remove. Removes every stumbling block to the gospel except for stubbornness and irrationality. But here's the thing. You still have to receive the gospel. I mean, you can read that book till you are blue in the face. But if you don't believe it for yourself, if you don't believe that it applies to yourself, if you don't apply it to yourself in the grace of God through faith, it makes no difference whatsoever in your life. You need to make a decision. A decision. You have to believe. So how about it? As you sit here this morning, are you in a present state of ongoing faith and trust, belief, assess yourself in the quietness of your heart, right where you sit. And if you're not in a present state of ongoing faith and trust, now would be a good time to either initiate it or renew it. Oh God, forgive me of my unbelief. I believe, I believe. That's the third question to assess yourself. Here's the fourth, am I quick to repent? Am I quick to repent? Are you quick, repent, are you quick to confess your wrongs and change your wrongs? Both and, both and, are you? Because that's what Peter advocated, repent on the spot. There was none of this, hey, you know, think about for a little while what I have to say and then, you know, kind of go and measure it and weigh it and see if maybe that's what you should do or not do and stuff like that. I, I can't even go there in our culture today. It was repent. Look at verse 38. Repent in response to the question, what shall we do? Repent. 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, repent and express it. Repent and proclaim it. Uh, confess your sin. Have a change of heart about your sin that shows. That's repentance in, in its fullness. It's confess your sin to God. Oh God, I'm so sorry for my sin. Have a change of heart about your sin, which of course would mean that your confession was genuine because if you didn't have a change of heart, your confession wasn't genuine. So it's one and the same at the same time. Confess, have a change of heart about your sin, and then bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Let it show which if it's genuine, you can't do anything but. And they did. They did that very day. They repented quickly. 3,000 of them. Just like that. How about you? Have you repented of your sin and sinfulness? Believing that Jesus would forgive you and wash you and redeem you because of his death for you? Have you done that to start with? And then, do you continue to repent when you sin? Because as much as God looks at you as being completely justified he, and declaring you righteous through the blood of Jesus, we continue to shed this sin nature. We continue to become more and more like Jesus. Positionally, we are right before him. Experientially, we are becoming more and more right before him. And that means that when we sin along the way in that process of sanctification, we need to repent of our sin, receiving his forgiveness anew. Is that you? I hope so. I hope so. For the glory of God and the joy of your soul, I hope so. For the passion of this church and, and your impact on those around here and on the other side of the world, I hope so. Because that's the intent of conviction, repentance. God convicts us that we might repent and be restored and then used. It's getting right with him all over again and being restored in our fellowship and experiencing his grace. I hope you repent and I hope you're quick to do so. Oh, may we be a people more and more where we diminish the time between our sin and our repentance. May it become immediate in our lives. Oh, God, forgive me when I haven't done so. Forgive us. Forgive us for being stubborn and making that time long. Oh, God, may you work in me and do whatever you would want to shorten it more and more and more. I say that because a quick survey of the Bible indicates that our sin grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit within us inhibits our prayers from us, affects those around us. Our sin never stops at our skin. Don't kid yourself. I don't care how secret it is. We live a spiritual life, loved ones. It affects those around us, not to mention it isolates us, our sin does, our unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin. It makes us susceptible to Satan's influence, Ephesians chapter 4, and it robs God of his glory. Failing to repent and repent quickly is no small thing. Assess yourself. And in the strength that God provides, be quick to repent. Number five, am I sure that I'm forgiven? Am I sure that I'm forgiven? Look at verse 38 again. 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. There it is. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a jam-packed statement to say a lot, especially about forgiveness. But what he's not saying is that we need to be baptized to receive it baptized to be saved. He's not saying that. And we know that because if he were, that would make baptism a work and it would contradict other more clear portions of Scripture. That, if he were saying that we need to be baptized in addition to repent in order to be saved, he would be saying that we need to do something tangible to earn a better standing with God. That's what a biblical work is. It's something tangible that we do to earn a better standing with God, which the Bible says doesn't work. Doesn't. 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us, the Apostle Paul wrote, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because of something tangible we do, including baptism, but he called us because of his own purpose and grace. We're not saved by works, but grace, God's grace, his favor toward us. And Ephesians 2.9 says the same, salvation is not a result of works. So Peter, here in Acts chapter 2, can't be saying that we need to repent and be baptized to be forgiven and saved. Rather, he's saying that baptism goes hand in hand with salvation as an expression of it. So closely that an unbaptized believer is a contradiction of terms. Can we just say it that way? Baptism goes hand in hand with salvation as an expression of it. It's an expression of our belief and our repentance and our forgiveness, not a means to our belief and our forgiveness and our repentance. Always let the clearer portions of Scripture, like the 2 Timothy 1.9s, interpret the less clear. And always make sure that the theology that you hear in a spouse takes into account the whole of Scripture and is consistent with it all. You have an exemplary pastor, an exemplary staff, and an exemplary elder board in that respect. Commend them to you wholeheartedly. That said, Peter promises forgiveness if we repent. Something that happens the first time we repent and something that happens the hundred and first time we repent. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. The, the first time it happens, it's to be saved, and every time thereafter, it's to be sanctified, which makes repentance a lifelong response to Jesus and the gospel. The bottom line being, when we repent, God forgives. Oh, don't, don't forget that. When we repent, God forgives. He's faithful. He's just to do so. The question is, are you confident of that? I think this is one of the biggest things that keeps uh, people in the kingdom of God, people in churches, even like this, from glorifying God with their lives and doing all that he wants us to do with the fervor and passion and the energy to do it. I, I think this whole thing of not being confident that we are forgiven and we, we continue to feel like a worm crawling on the ground that God not only can't use us because of our sin, even though we've repented of it, but he won't use us because of our sin. We errantly think such things. 
Like when you sin and repent in the course of your life, are you sure that God no longer holds it against you? Casts it away from you as far as the east is from the west? Infinitely? Like, do you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? 1 John 1, 9. Are you confident of that? Or do you continue to be racked by guilt, miserable on the inside and ashamed on the out, doubting whether God would or could ever use you, or wondering if there's any blessing left for you in life? Is that you? Like, do you doubt God's forgiveness and walk around with a cloud over your soul, casting a dark shadow everywhere you go, a shadow of fear, a shadow of anxiety that somebody's going to find you out or the consequences are going to come? There may be consequences for your sin this side of heaven, but you will never receive the consequences ultimately that you deserve because God has forgiven you. Do you walk around with a shadow, a shadow of anxiety, a shadow of worthlessness, if so, can I just say to you that it's time to trust God's promise 100%, all out, all in? It's time. It's time to trust that he forgives you of your fallenness and your lust and your pornography and your greed and your gossip and looking for love in all the wrong places and the list goes on and on and on. It's time to trust. It's time to put your hand to the plow and move on and stop looking in the rearview mirror. It's time to stop looking over your shoulder, wondering when the next shoe is going to drop when the shoe doesn't exist. God doesn't have shoes. It's time to rest assured in the truth of God's word that having repented of your sin, he's forgiven it. It's time to adopt the mantra that my mom used to say to me ad nauseum growing up. I got so stinking sick and tired of it and she had no idea how much the Lord would use it in my life. If, God word, if God's word says it, I believe it and that settles it, period. Bless you, mom. Assess yourself and be sure. Rest assured. Number six, three more. Am I led by the Spirit? Am I led by the Spirit? Repent and be baptized, Peter said, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Everyone God calls, everyone he chooses to be saved, everyone he chooses to be his own, a part of his family, adopting us into the family of God, everyone will receive the Holy Spirit. That is every single one of us at salvation receives the power and presence of the living God within us. We ought to just like pause for the next five days to let that sink in. Because that is ridiculous in the best sense of the word. We are actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. That's the promise to which Peter refers. And it doesn't matter if you were there or not, at Pentecost or, or far off, and that generation or this one. If God calls you to himself, his spirit is yours the moment you respond. The moment you're saved. The question is, does it show? 
Are you led by him? Guided. Directed. You are if he prompts you and reminds you of things, things of truth. You know you're led by the Spirit when? You know you're led when he gives you strength to persevere in a way when most people are dropping like flies around you. You you know you're led by the Spirit when he brings to mind words to speak. You know you're led by the Spirit when he comforts you with peace that goes beyond your understanding. You know, peace that passes all understanding. Peace that defies logic. It's a peace that I experienced in a new and fresh way this past month. My dad died on July 6th, earlier this month. And I praise God that he's with Jesus face to face. I rejoice in that. But as you well imagine... And that's a bit of a storm to go through, especially when it's unexpected. And I've known the peace of God in my heart and soul as I've kept kept my mind stayed on him because I trust in him, Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. And I encourage you to do the same. That's when you know you're led by the Spirit, when you experience peace that the world doesn't have, when you have hope that you're bolstered, that puts wind in your sails that other people can't even imagine. But if he doesn't do any of those things, if you've never uh, experienced any of those things firsthand, if that's like Greek to you, if I'm speaking Portuguese, you're probably not led by the Spirit. Oh, he may be living within you, but it's very likely that you have quenched and grieved him for so much and so long that you're calloused to his promptings. And it's especially the case you're not led by the Spirit if you ignore him. Or you just forget about him. Out of sight, out of mind. We tend to do that in our brand of evangelical Christianity. Our our trinity tends to be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Bible. And we throw the baby out with the bathwater because so many others have abused the Holy Spirit. Your pastor preached on this recently. If you ignore the Holy Spirit, if he's out of sight, out of mind, that makes you a functional atheist. Somebody who checks off on the right truths but lives their life and makes decisions just like everybody else in the world, led by nobody but themselves or the culture around them. It's called functional atheism. And it's just the opposite of being led by the Spirit. Assess yourself, truly. Are you led by the Spirit or the Spirit of this world? Are you a functional follower or a functional atheist? There's a big difference in a fine line. That's number six. Here's number seven. Do I heed the preaching of God's word? Do I heed the preaching of God's word? Verse 40. It says, Luke's commentary, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. I don't know about you, but the line uh, to talk to Peter in the new heavens and the new earth someday, I don't care if it takes me 10,000 years to wait in that line because we've got all the time in the world. I, I'm going to be in line to ask him, can you like, give me a little insight as to what those other words were? I mean, just fill my soul even more if that's even possible, being in the presence of God directly in heaven. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save, big summary statement, save yourselves from this crooked generation. If that applied then, does it not apply now? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Should that not be the words on our lips, the summary of of our heart? Save yourself from this crooked generation. And 3,000 of them did. 
in one fell swoop. They heeded the preaching of God's word. That is, they listened to it and applied it. Listened and applied. Listened and applied. How about you? Are you a hearer and doer like James says, the Apostle James, or, or just a hearer? Do you respond to what you hear or do you ignore it? Let it go in one ear and out the other. Maybe more pointedly, is this a spiritual time for you or, or, or a checkoff? You know, just get it over with and get me out of here for crying out loud. Is that what you're thinking? If it is, you're not heeding the preaching of God's word. If that's you and your, your life isn't changing, if you're not growing in your walk, if your worship just continues to be lackluster and passion, passionless, you're probably not heeding the preaching of God's word. Like if this is just easy come, easy go, you know, walk in the door, walk out the door, you don't serve, you don't give, you don't connect with uh, the other believers, like this is just a fix. It's a placebo in fact which is just the opposite of those who heeded Peter's preaching at Pentecost. They listened and acted, didn't they? They listened and applied. We see this in the subsequent chapters. They listened and changed. They listened and loved. They listened and served. They listened and gave. They listened and studied. Make an honest assessment. Do I heed the preaching of God's word? And then last, but certainly not least, have I been baptized as a believer? Have I been baptized as a believer? Repent and be baptized, Peter said in verse 38, every one of you, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, meaning get baptized as an expression of your allegiance to him, as an expression that it's his flag that you fly, and no other, no other. Get baptized as an expression of your connection with him, your love for him. That's the idea of in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't get wet just for the sake of getting wet. I despise it when people talk about baptism and say, I got dunked. Dude, you get dunked in a swimming pool. You get baptized in the waters of God. Don't get wet just for the sake of getting wet, but to express your identification with Jesus that it's because of him you're forgiven and saved. Get baptized in his name, which you can't legitimately do unless you first believe in him. The very thing that Peter implies in verse 41, those who received his word, once again, past tense, those who received it, past tense, were baptized in the present. Those, that is, those who believed what Peter said about Jesus and the gospel were immersed in water to show it. First they believed, then they were baptized, picturing outwardly what had already taken place inwardly. Picturing outwardly that they are in the water, just like what has already taken place inwardly, that they are in Jesus, that they are immersed in him. And it's so important that Peter commands it. Don't miss it. He commands it for everyone. Everyone who believes. So how about it? 
Have you been baptized as a believer? Immersed in water to show that you're immersed in Jesus. If not, it's not too late for this next round in your church, August 5th. It's your next baptism opportunity. And I want to urge you, I want to encourage you, plead with you, clear your calendar, work through the process, get up front here after the service and talk to one of the elders up here, one of the pastors, and get baptized. For God's glory, get baptized. It's about him, not so much you. For your joy, get baptized. Because your joy gives God all the more glory. It's like compound interest. Get baptized for the blessing of this church. In the name of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus. Eight questions to assess your life in light of the truth about Jesus. Questions to search your heart in light of the gospel. And if necessary, make a change. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, thank you for this example. Your word, the example recorded for us of, of those at Pentecost and literally millions since down through the ages. Oh God, in light of it, help us to make an honest assessment of our life, our lives. Help us, we pray, by your spirit. And give us the strength to follow through. Oh Lord, how we need you. Give us the strength to follow through today, tomorrow, and throughout the week.